Well, good morning. I want to thank you for joining us this morning, and uh, it's good to see your faces, and I want to welcome those who are joining us online. Uh, We're happy to have you with us, and we hope we grow through this worship that the team has prepared for us and through the word that God has prepared for us. Um, I guess it's appropriate to say Happy New Year, but I always cringe at the word happy, I have to admit, because I'm I'm an English major, and uh, that word comes from an older English word called happenstance, which is basically the word for luck. So it's like saying, lucky new year to you. And that's not where we live, right? Uh, I wish you a joyous new year. Joyous because we increasingly dwell and trust in God's love and grace and goodness, which supremely overrides all that happens to us, right? So a joyous new year to you. Uh, my name is Doug Gamble. Most of you know I'm a, my wife and I work as uh, uh, oversee, uh, outreach workers for Coal to the World, and we work in Costa Rica in a seminary there, and Lord willing, we'll be returning there very soon. We've been stuck outside the country for a while now. But I want to start today with a story from our early years in Costa Rica. Uh, we moved there first, and we did language school there first and stayed, and have done ministry there since, and uh, When we first moved there, our children were seven, four, and one. And we rented uh, an 800-square-foot house that shared a wall with the landlord's brother. And just across the yard, which was filled with coffee plants, was the landlord. And I remember very intentionally talking about this as a family, that when we moved into that home, we wanted to communicate in word and deed the gospel of Jesus and his goodness to all that we met, to all the people around us in the neighborhood and to our landlord and to his brother and everybody else. Well, one day about mm, two months in, I lost it. I lost my temper. I had a meltdown. It was a pretty big one. And uh, it was loud. I yelled. When I have meltdowns, I yell. And uh, it was loud enough that There was no denying that the neighbor could hear, right? Um, Now, I could probably come up with a half a dozen reasons to explain my meltdown, but the real reason was my own sin. And I had somehow believed that my anger would solve the problem, would bully people into doing them what they want or the way I wanted to do it. But as always happens, we discover that James is right when he writes in his book, that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. <laughs> um, well, I settled down and, and uh, I apologized and asked forgiveness of my family and of my wife. But, of course, the tone was a little cold for a while. Uh, and the next morning, I went over and apologized to the neighbor for disturbing the peace. And I will never forget the... Uh, the expression on his face. I mean, I, I have no idea what I was communicating to him through all this. I don't know what he read from all this, but it didn't feel like it could be very good, right? <laughs> and uh, so he gave me this expression that was kind of, he kind of chuckled, kind of smiled, and I wasn't really sure whether what he was saying was, well, you know, that's human nature. We all have moments like that. Or whether it was, well, you're not the first missionary family to rent that house, and we've seen this before. I'm afraid it was probably the second, right? Now, the passage that I'm going to talk about today, the, the one that, that Jolene read, was, it was is um, not about anger. 
but it is uh, it explains the root of my anger and why I lost it that day. And it's the root cause of why we go wrong in any number of ways. So what I want to do is just walk through the chapter, and uh, then I'm going to explain what I think are the key principles for us to walk away with today. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this body and the worship that we've just enjoyed and that we consistently enjoy. Thank you for your word going out. And I pray today that you would just make a lot of divine appointments with everybody who's hearing this, that you would do your work with them right where they are in their lives right now, as I've seen you do with me in this passage this week. I thank you that you don't give up on us, that you're near and ready to help and wanting to grant us your grace and your growth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Okay, the chapter starts off introducing us to Jehoram, son of Ahab, who is now the new king of the northern kingdom. Uh, He seems, it says, to make some corrections. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal. But then the bottom line is, is, nevertheless, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and clung to the sins of Jeroboam. I've got to pause there just for a minute and say, well, what are those? What are those sins? Jeroboam, you'll remember, was the first king of the northern kingdom. He had been a a, a kind of a a, a great administrator and a charismatic leader under Solomon. But then when God decided he was going to take 10 twelfths of of uh, of, of the tribe away, of the tribes away from Solomon, he appointed Jeroboam to be that first king. But what Jeroboam did was what was wrong. He had a chance to be a good king. But what he did instead was he got insecure because the people were going down from the northern kingdom down into Jerusalem to the festivals, to do the sacrifices, and to, to, to live the Jewish life out of Jerusalem. And he was afraid he was losing loyalty. He was afraid he was losing people. And he was losing power. So what he did is he set up his own version of the faith. He established the cities of Bethel in the south and Dan in the north as worship sites. He created golden calves to worship. Have we heard that before? How could anybody go for this? But they did. He appointed his own people as priests, not of the Levitical priesthood. I imagine there was some corruption in who got those jobs. And he established his own festivals. So he basically did his own version of the faith up there in the north because it would be easier for his people. He'd be able to control them better and he could feel secure in that. Now, this is what Jehoram, the new king, buys into. This is referred to, the sins of Jeroboam are referred to a dozen times in this book, and it's the key way that the people were misled and the sheepish Israelites followed right where their leader went into this wickedness. All right. Now, in verse 4, we're told that Moab rebels. This picks up from the first verse of 2 Kings. There was a, a hiatus there. We talked about Elijah and Elisha, and now we come back to that story. Can we have slide one up there, please? Just to understand the geography a little bit, um, you see Moab over there on the east side of the Dead Sea. So these armies are going to have to gonna march down through the, on the west side of the Dead Sea, around the south side of the Dead Sea, through Edom, and on up into Moab to be able to, to uh, get this uh, victory that they're looking for. Um, there is, uh, the next slide, please. Uh, there is a monument, kind of slightly yeah, there we go. It's called, this is called the Steel of Misha. Misha was the king of, of Moab at the time, 
And there's this, they discovered it in the mid-1800s. It's got a lot of the biblical history on it and the biblical names from a whole bunch of the book of Kings right there. And so this is archaeological evidence written by the enemy of this story that a whole bunch of this stuff is verified. And Newsweek, when it came into the public, ran an article that said it seems to show that some of the Bible is partly true. They were just not willing to give even an inch. But we have here archaeological evidence that much of what we read here is, is true. So, uh, all of what we read here is true, but this didn't talk about all of it. That's what I'm trying to say. Sorry. Um, So, Jehoram, this new king, he's in a tight spot. He wants to to get back all that tribute that the country had been getting from about 100,000 sheep a year, the wool of 100,000 rams. That's substantial economic impact. And at this key moment, the king of Moab says, oh, transition in power, I'm pulling out. There's a time of weakness, which is not unusual, right? But Jehoram says, I can't let this happen. This is an economic impact. It makes him look bad politically, like he's, if he does nothing, he's looked weak. And I think, you know, he doesn't get quite as many goodies for his palace luxury either. So he decides that he's going to go to war and get this thing straightened out. But one thing to notice doesn't consult even one of his own prophets. No sign that he asks God to see if this is a wise thing to do. No hint of seeking God at all. But what he does do is he gathers more troops. So he approaches Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom. That's where he enters the story. Jehoshaphat has been one of the good kings. He's followed God. He's tried to establish God's ways, not perfectly, but substantially well. He falls into the category of one of the good kings. Um, And when Jehoram comes and asks Jehoshaphat to create this alliance, what uh, Jehoshaphat says is very, very important. He says, I will go with you. I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. That's 2 Kings 3, verse 4. Look at 1 Kings 22, 4. It's the same. Jehoshaphat had said the same thing and made the same kind of an alliance with Ahab a number of chapters ago. He made the alliance. They wanted to go to war with Ramoth-Gilead. And they consulted a prophet of the Lord, and the the prophet said, Well, here's what I see. I see the people of Israel scattered across the hillsides like sheep without a shepherd. The war isn't... don't, Don't go to war. And they went to war. Ahab's killed... They don't win the war, and it's an indictment of the lack of leadership on Jehoshaphat's part that he's not really shepherding his people as they're meant to be shepherded. But what I want to draw your attention to is when the writer makes these exact parallels here, he wants us to see this chapter in light of that chapter so that we have to have them both kind of in front of us as we look at this. Um, And what happened was that they lost that war, and Jehoshaphat went home, uh, as, a, uh, as having suffered this defeat. All right. Now, they march out in verse 9 and following. You can take that slide off there for the moment. Thank you. Uh, they march out and they, wa- they, they march for seven days, it says. Uh, and the word they described is cir- uh, circuitous. It literally means in circles. Now, I don't know if they're marching in circles, but they weren't making the kind of progress they needed to, and they're in very, very rough country. Let's look at slide number four. 
This is one of the wadis of this country. Uh, Tim Coles took this picture and gave it to me. And you can, can you imagine crossing a country where you are continually running into that stuff? It's hot. It's dry. It's very rough and rugged country. Okay? And they march for seven days, and lo and behold, they're out of water. And it's, this isn't just like, I'm thirsty. This is life-threatening. There are three armies out there. They incorporate the, the king of Edom because he's a vassal state to Jehoshaphat, and he can't really say no when he asks him to fight with him. So they've got three kings, three armies marching together, and before long, they're not even thinking about the battle anymore. They're just thinking about survival. Come to, they've come to the end of their, uh, 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 of their resources, and they're about to die in the desert. It's remarkable how these great powers can so easily be brought to their knees. One, one uh, commentator said, Three kings, three armies, well-skilled in war, were gathered to subdue Moab. And lo, the whole of the army were brought to a deadlock and a standstill by the simple circumstance that there was no water. How easily God can nonplus and checkmate, I like that word, checkmate all the wisdom and strength of mankind. What it really says is that we're a lot more fragile than we think. We're a lot weaker than we think. I remember uh, a few years back I had a series of spells with kidney stones. And the first one, I got up on one side of our living room in in Costa Rica, and I was just going to go to the bathroom. And three steps in, the pain grabbed me, and I dropped to my knees and began to howl like a coyote. And I howled all the way to the hospital, and I hollered, and I howled in the hospital until they morphined me up. Okay? So I spent a night in the hospital, and they took that thing out, and it was so unimpressive. This the size of a fat grain of sand. And it had laid me low. And I thought to myself later, how fragile we are, how vulnerable we are. We think we're big and strong when that little fat piece of sand can bring me to my knees. And that's the lesson that they learn here is it's they thought they had these big plans and now they can't even quench their thirst. So now let's look at the response to the water crisis. Let's look at each of the players. Let's look at Jehoram, the northern king. Notice what he says twice in verse 10 and in verse 13. The Lord has led us here to turn us over to Moab, to destroy us. Twice he says it. He doesn't consult God. He's out there from his own fleshly desires, but now he blames God. God's the bad guy. He's gone so far away from following God that God looks like an adversary, not like an advocate. Jehoshaphat is different. He finally says, we need to hear from God. Now, in the 1 Kings 22 passage, he asked that right away. He said, let's consult God right away. Here he's late. He's, he's, they're on the verge of, of dying of thirst, all the army and all the men. And finally he says it, but it's better late than never, Right? David Guzik writes, he says, Jehoram believed that God was to be avoided because of the crisis, and Jehoshaphat believed that God should be sought because of the crisis. Two different approaches to what happened. Now, we have to look at what Elisha says and does. But before we do, I want to note two little details that I think are really, really important in the text here. In verse 11, uh, uh, the answer to the question, is there a prophet of God here? One person seems to know. 
And it's in verse 11, one of the king of Israel's servants. He says, Elisha's here. He's the one who's the mantle of prophecy passed from Elijah to him. He's here. This guy is unnamed, but he changes the whole direction of the narrative. He knows where the, per, the man of God is. And this changes everything from this point on. And the writer of Kings uses this. He, he, he touches on this theme many times. In the next chapter, we're going to see an unnamed widow, somebody who has no status in the community, be the key to what God, how God manifests himself. And in chapter 5, it's going to be an Israelite slave girl. She's a captive in, from war serving in Naaman, a foreign general's house, who says, you should consult Elijah, Elisha. These unnamed, out-of-the-spotlight people are the ones who direct the activity, direct the, the uh, seeking to God. And you know what? That's what we are. We're out of the spotlight. Your name's not going to be in the Bible, unless you stole it from somebody, and it's already in the Bible, right? But you, we're not going to show up in the Bible. We're not in the spotlight, but we have an incredibly important role to play. There are no small servants in God's kingdom. And when you and I speak up at the moment God moves us into the position to do so, we need to speak the truth, point people to God's word, point people to God's grace, point people to God's way, just as this servant does. You never know the influence it's going to have. I am amazed at how many times somebody that we haven't seen for years comes to our house for dinner, well, less this year, right? But, but we'll, we'll, we'll meet with them and they'll say, they'll say to Laura, it happens to Laura more than to me. Laura, I remember when you said, and it was something she said one line five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that changed the direction of that person's life. You know, that happens. We can probably all cite stories like that. So we have a role. We're out of the spotlight you are important. We are important in directing people to God. Notice, verse 12 is another thing I want to draw your attention to before we get to what Elisha does. What do these kings do? They go to Elisha. They don't summon him as a subject and say, come up here and talk to us. They go down to him. They go to seek what the Lord's word and the Lord's help. They are subject to the word of the Lord. The kings are subject to the word of the Lord, not the other way around. You see, those who appear to be in control in that world and in ours aren't really in control. God is in control. He is the king of kings, and he reigns current, current tense, present tense, sorry. Okay, let's look at Elisha. The first thing I want you to notice about Elisha is where he is. <laughs> The servant says, the servant of God, Elisha, is here. Where are they? They're seven days' march up into the desert where they're stranded without water. Elisha has followed them out there. He's subjected himself to the same hardship, the same difficulty, the same heat, the same thirst, and he is right there waiting in case they call on the Lord. He didn't stay at home and say, those guys are dumb, this is not going to work. He's right there waiting to advise them if they choose to seek the Lord. That's a beautiful picture of God being right with us, right? Now, the first thing he says is kind of funny. He puts Jehoram in his place. He says, you don't even deserve to be here, right? The, he, 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 he reminds them that God rejects this 
this new version, this self-made version of, God, of, of religion of the faith. So God, that's nothing, nothing has nothing to do with God's way. It has nothing to do with God himself or God's word. I don't even respect your being here. He's kind of irritated with him, to tell you the truth. Then he uses the phrase, as the Lord of hosts lives. Now, it's easy to gloss right over that. But the Lord of hosts means that Yahweh is the leader of the great celestial army. The kings of three armies have come to talk to Elisha. And Elisha says, by the way, I speak for the leader of the celestial army who makes yours look like Little League by comparison. He puts all these kings in their place. That they think they're these big warriors, but wait a minute, you're talking to the king of kings here. And now to deliver his word, he seeks a musician. I don't think we need to make a big deal out of that. It's not, it doesn't go into a trance or anything. I think he just is really, frankly, I think he's irritated by Jehoram's presence. And he just wants to go someplace and get quiet. And he waits until the Lord speaks to him, just like we need to do sometimes. But now he says, the declaration of the word of God says, the word says, I will bring water. And so he's going to solve this problem. And he says it's a light thing or an easy thing or a little thing for God to do that. This thing that is absolutely impossible that threatens the lives of these armies is an easy, easy thing for God to fix. And he will. And it will be this salvation he offers these armies will be a supernatural thing. You don't know where the water is going to come from. You won't see it rain. You won't see any clouds. You won't hear any thunder. But by tomorrow morning, you're going to have water right here. Salvation is always a supernatural event. It is always the work of God. It is always a miracle. When a human soul encounters salvation in Christ, it is a miracle, and we must recognize it and give glory to God for it and not think we can do it by really effective discipleship. Discipleship is important. Evangelism is important. But salvation is from the Lord alone. The other part of this is really interesting is that uh, Elisha very quickly moves to the battle. says, this is a small thing. He will also, and he talks about the success they're going to have in the battle. I think there's something instructive in this uh, connection of these two things. We are saved from something, but we're also saved for something. As believers, we're saved from something our sin and from the debt of our sin. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning. We're saved for greater purposes. As Paul says, to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. That we're, we're, we're saved from ourselves or the destructive sin that will eat us up if we're not, if we don't, we're not intervened for by the Lord. But that's just the start. And now he opens the door to working with him now that we have this relationship with him. So we're saved from and we're saved for. And so he begins to describe this battle, this attack. And he says, you're just going to lay this, lay waste to this country. They're going to, every soldier is going to throw rocks out in the field, which what's going to happen when the next guy tries to cultivate that farm? Well, he's got to take thousands of stones out of it. They're going to stop up the, the water sources, cut down the key trees, and they're going to have all this success. Right? He promises that. And when they start the battle, that's what they experience. That's what we see in verse 20. They go on, and it's extremely successful. They do all the things that Elisha says they will do. Now, the Moabites are scrambling. 
they wake up in the morning. Because if we see that next slide, please. And this is what they see. They look down at the Israeli camp, and that's the, the, the valley is full of water. And while the soldiers are drinking up and getting restored, they see this and they think, that's blood. Those Hebrews are fighting with each other again. And they've gone overboard now and killed each other. All we got to do is waltz in there and collect the booty. Well, that backfires because the Israelites are ready. And they begin this attack and are very, very successful. They get to the point where they're about to take the final central city and the king Misha of Moab tries some tactics against Edom because he thinks that's the weak spot because they're just a vassal state fighting because they have to. Doesn't work. God stops that. And then we get this strange event on in, uh, described in verse 27. It says, Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place, and he offered him as a burnt offering on the wall of the city. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. This is an act that's consistent with this, with idolatrous faith of, the, of God of Chemosh. And you can imagine, this had to be an incredible sight, a, a grotesque, incredible stink involved with it and everything else. And then we get this word, and the wrath was great against Israel. They don't get this victory. They go home without capturing the king and this final city the central city. And we ask ourselves, what is going on here? What's the wrath? Well, one thing we have to settle once and for all is not that this God of Chemosh has any power. He's made of wood and stone. He's not a God at all. This isn't some cosmic conflict between God, uh, Yahweh, and the God of Chemosh. That's, the God of Chemosh is nothing. What happens here is that the will of Yahweh. God is in control of this thing from beginning to end, and this is something God is responsible for. And I think we, the explanation of it is found in the Chronicles version of the story where, where uh, Jehoshaphat made that first liaison, that first alliance with Ahab. In the story there, and Chronicles always tells kind of the, 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 of the same history in Kings, but through kind of the lens of God's spirit. We see a spiritual side in Chronicles that we don't see in Kings. So he tells that same story of his allying himself with Ahab and everything else. They lose the war. Jehoshaphat goes home. But a prophet pursues him there. Look what he says. Let's have slide six, if we can, please. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to the king Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? talking about his alliance with Ahab. Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. That's the same word for wrath, exactly. So what has happened here is, is uh, Jehoshaphat was offered, was asked for another alliance just like he made with Ahab, and he didn't learn his lesson even though he was specifically warned. And he says exactly the same thing. I'm with you. My horses are your horses. I am as you are. And he commits the same exact uh, sin that he did the first time and was sternly warned about it. And here, when they meet this final city, he encounters that wrath and God says, no, you're not going to get this. I'm stopping it here. You're not going to go as far as you might had you obeyed me and taken the warning that I gave you. Okay. We've walked through the text. 
Now, the question you always have to ask when you, after you read a text is, why is this here? <laughs> There's a whole bunch of things that happened in this time that didn't make it into the Bible. This made it into the Bible. Everything here is important. Why? And that's where we begin to wrestle. What's the deal? Well, and I see here, as we go through the people, I think the lessons come from Jehoram, from Jehoshaphat, and ultimately from Elisha. Let me stop with Jehoram. I think what he does is something we often see, especially in the secular world, but we can also see it within the church sometimes. What did Jehoram and Jehoshaphat, excuse me, Jehoram and, and his father Jeroboam do? They created their own version of a religion. And what I see in modern culture today, it's a religion that I would call, I'm basically a good person religion. Everybody forms some kind of belief system. And those, especially those who aren't listening to the Bible who says we are sinners in need of forgiveness, they want to feel good about themselves. In fact, they do feel good about themselves. And they build a worldview around, well, the things that I really care about and the things that I really, I really contribute, those are super important. I'm really good at them. And the things where I don't do so good, well, that's not very important anyway. And they build a worldview around this idea that they are basically a good person and this worldview simply affirms everything they like and want and doesn't give them any bad news at all. But they live in that kind of thing. And if you poke it too hard, they get really mad. Right? But here's what happens under those kind of circumstances. Is the farther you go down that road, your belief system, it tarnishes the view of the true God. Such that the view of the true God comes, begins to come across as an adversary, an enemy, somebody who doesn't like you, somebody to be avoided. Look at what Jehoram does. He's followed this system that has been created, this, second, this alternate sort of faith. And what's his view of God? As soon as there's trouble, he blames God. Oh, God's out here to get us. His view of God is, is, is negative and angry. You see, even in our, in our day, we know people that if you offer them grace, they're so far down this road that I'm basically a good person. You offer them the grace of God and they're offended by it. They think, they, they interpret God as judgmental, as, 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 uh, as mistreatment. I don't, I don't, I, why would I want to follow your God? So it tarnishes and contaminates their view of who God is. Even atheists try to build a life which they feel good for about themselves right? But why? I don't know. Because if this is all there is, why bother? Why not eat, drink, and be merry? But everybody builds a system in which they can feel good about themselves. The Bible starts with the, with the news that, well, you're a filthy sinner, but there's grace, right? So this is Jehoram's kind of problem and warning to us. And if we're not careful, we can try to reshape our own faith in ways to our own liking and we need to take the whole counsel of God and take the good news with the bad news. Now, Jehoshaphat's failure is different. Jehoshaphat fails to say no at a number of critical points in his life. His failure is the failure to say no when alliances with unrighteous kings have presented themselves. Now, this convicts me. And I think all of us could probably point to a number of things where you and I have failed to say no when we know we should have said no. 
Jesus puts it in very general terms when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a fundamental saying no to a number of things, right? It's a no to our selfishness, but it's a no to other things like, like our anger or perhaps our need for approval of others or any number of temptations, whether it's consumerism or greed or alcohol or drugs or pornography or illegitimate sex or selfish sex inside marriage. The list could go on of things that we don't say no to, but which we should and we know we should. Sometimes they're good things. There are so many opportunities in our culture today that we can say yes to, but if we say yes to too much and we don't say no, we squeeze God out of the picture. We become squeezed into the culture's mold instead of setting aside time and space for God to speak to us so that we can hear him. So saying no is very, very important. We all know that. Let me, let me, let me put another image to it. Let's say we invite God into the throne of our hearts. That's what we do, right? But our hearts are like a home, many different rooms. And if we're not careful, we may put a lock on one of the doors of the rooms of our house and say, God, you're not allowed in here. Or maybe we shut one of the closets off and say, no, no, God, I don't want you messing around in this one. Now, that might be any number of these things we've talked about. It could be our finances. It could be our thought life. It could be our sex life. It could be our hobbies or our friendships. It could be our computer or social media practices. It could be those things like that we become addicted to, like chemicals and, and, and alcohol and those kind of things. It could be any number of things. But the point is, we say, no, no. I'm going to handle that. I'm not going to let you in there, God, because I don't want to say no to those things. So, God, keep out. And we lock that door. Now, what does that do? What's the result? The result is precisely what Jehoshaphat experienced. He could get so far, and then he bumped into something where he could go no further. It hindered him. It impeded his growth. He couldn't get into that area of victory where he knew he needed to go. So it stopped him short of where God otherwise would have allowed him to go and experience the fuller experience of who he is and have greater victory in his life. And that's what happens to us. Now, the truth is that Jehoram's sin and Jehoshaphat's sin and the anger that I referred to at the beginning have the same root. They're from the same source. It's a failure to trust God. It's a lack of faith in God's goodness, in God's control, and in his grace. There's something we want and we're afraid God won't give it to us, or he won't give it to us like we want it, or he won't give it to us when we want it. And so we lock the door and say, no, I'm going to handle that myself, God. I don't trust the way you're going to handle that in my life. I'm not going to like the way you handle that in my life. So we lock that door. When I got angry at my family is because I thought I could bully them into some way that I would be satisfied that the thing I wanted I would get. But like always happens when we go our own way, when we lock that door and and just choose to handle that in our own way, instead of trusting God's provision, instead of trusting God's timing, destruction follows, inevitably. In this case, to myself or to ourselves and to all those people in our sphere. Not trusting God means we're running on selfishness and fear. And that always takes us away from life, not towards it. 
Freedom comes in letting God take up residence and control in all the rooms of the house. The rooms we hold back from him will be the ones where we eventually find ourselves like the troops here, far into the desert and dying of thirst. But we can't leave out Elisha. What happened to Elisha? He's in this story, right? And yes, he is. And he followed those kings out there and he was ready for when they turned and wanted a word from God. Isn't this a picture of God himself? I mean, what did we just celebrate? God becoming man, pursuing us right into our existence, right into our lives, right there with us, God, with us in the midst of the, the end of a circuitous march out into a desert where there's no water. And he's right there. He's there with our difficult situations, our awkward situations, our embarrassing situations, our dangerous situations. And when we call out to God, it's not like we have to go climb a mountain to find him. We don't have to fight a battle to find him or to win the right to see him. We don't have to clean up the house. He's right there. Oh, I've been waiting for you to come and talk to me. And this is an easy thing for him to do. It's an easy thing for him to take hold of your life and make something good of it. They will seem like impossible situations to us, but he's right there to do something that is easy for him. But we have to remember that when he saves us, he has greater purposes. It's not just what he's saving us from. It's what he's saving us for. They're his kingdom purposes, which are more fulfilling, more meaningful than anything in those rooms that we want to shut off to God. Let's pray. Lord, make us people who embrace all of who you are and don't try to change who you are for our own comfort or convenience. Make us people who turn to you even when we're in very difficult circumstances or we don't know where to go. And Lord, help us to Embrace the good that you want to do, not only in saving us, but the good you have for us in front. Help us to open all the doors of our home to you to experience what you have for us so that we're not held back, but that we have the things and move in the ways that you have made us to do. This is possible only because of what Jesus has done for us, and we pray in his name. Amen.